If you're listening to this episode at the time that it's being released and you're thinking about work, you're probably thinking about maybe returning to a physical office in this new land of the Delta variant, or perhaps you're looking for a job or you're figuring out how to get a new job because you're done with the one that you have, or maybe you don't want to talk or think about work at all. But the reality is we all understand work dynamics and most of us can't escape the reality that we do need to belong to a group that provides us with money to make a living. So here's our question. What happens when you make a mistake at work? How do you think that affects you? Or how do you think that affects the people who work with you or for you? Picture that moment in your mind. And for me, whenever I picture a moment like that, that moment is tinged with embarrassment, with fear at being yelled at, and with dread at the long hours I'd need to put in to fix whatever I had screwed up in the first place. Obviously, this is the big law experience, but it definitely wasn't a learning experience. Yeah, I can relate to that, actually. And that's why I think this is most interesting, because what if we told you that there's another way to do business? One that focuses on love. Now, hear us out for a second, because if your first instinct was to immediately dismiss that, maybe laugh, have an eye roll, we get it. But we were absolutely convinced after we spoke with our guests today and read their book. Mohamed Anwar and Jeff Ma are executives at Softway, which is a company whose mission is to bring humanity back to the workplace. And in their book, Love as a Business Strategy, they break down how this is possible. And spoiler alert, it starts with some internal work first, totally in line with so much that we've talked about on this show as well. You know, after you've heard what they have to say, here's what we'd like you to do. Tell your friends to listen. You know that was coming, right? You just, you knew it. But buy their book from their website and download the free resources to read it and share it with your teams, both at work and in other spheres. And please let us know what most resonated with you by emailing us at hello at dearwhitewomen.com. Let's put humanity first at work and see where that gets us. You ready? Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that helps white women use their privilege to uproot systemic racism. We are your biracial hosts, Sarah and Misasha. We're so excited to have you both here. Would you please introduce yourselves to our audience? Sure. I'm Mohammed Anwar, the president and CEO of Softway, and uh, one of the co-authors of the recent book that we just released called Love as a Business Strategy. Well... My name is Jeff Ma. My introduction will be short as well. I'm another co-author of Love is a Business Strategy. I work with Mohammed at Softway and we spend way too much time together. So that's why we're here. Excited to talk to you guys. We also, of course, have our own podcast of Love is a Business Strategy, which is how we first met all of us. So it's so good to see you all again, Sarah and Misasha. Thanks for having us. I'm super excited to be here because my LinkedIn feed totally blew up when your book came out and suddenly it was my entire LinkedIn feed was love as a business strategy. And I was like, this is amazing. And you wrote a book, which as Sarah and I have been doing this process for a little bit, you know, it, this is work, but it is like such an amazing process. Right. And I love your book, your title. And I love that this is basically, you know, a business book for people who are over business books. Right. And these high level theoretical ideas of how things can be better. So why did you decide to write 
this book and also why the title? And I'm so excited to ask someone else this question for once. So, All right. So I can address that. So first of all, we wrote this book because, you know, we had the opportunity to go through our own culture transformation. So as an owner and CEO of our company, we were almost 300 employees at one point in time. And the way that I was running the business, you could easily say that I was running it with greed as a business strategy. And I was extremely selfish. And while it got me some short-term success, and I had felt like I had hit the pinnacle of success, everything came down crashing uh, in 2015. And there was nothing hiding but the truth that it wasn't the external factors. It wasn't our customers. It wasn't the economy. It was clearly my behaviors and my attitude that had led to Softways almost uh, closing down. And, you know, my behaviors as a leader of the company had created a toxic workplace culture. And as a result, we were, you know, losing employees due to our culture. We were losing talent, or even if the talent were there, they weren't bringing their heart and soul into the work that they were doing. And we were really struggling. And, you know, there was a point in time where I was fortunate enough to have a realization through a moment of introspection that this is all my fault. And I hadn't really taken the time to focus on the culture of Softway. Neither did I really care for the people of Softway. And I was fortunate enough to realize that I needed to change that if I needed to save the company. And it started with me changing myself and changing my behavior and attitude and finding the ability to love and care for the people of Softway. And so as we went through that journey and, you know, I began trying to change and go on this journey, soon the organization jumped on board with me to build this uh, culture, which we refer to as culture of love inside of our organization. And over the course of the years, we not only survived, but we also thrived. And our customers saw our success and they became aspirational saying, I want that. I want that culture for ourselves. We want to see it in our own organizations. And as a result, we began to find a new purpose, a new calling for a business, which is to help bring back humanity to the workplace. And as a way to achieve that vision, we decided that we needed to write a book. We needed to share with the rest of the world that love can be a business strategy. And it is the strategy to really not just make money, but also build sustainable business platforms where people can bring their full self and bring back humanity to the workplace. And that pushed us to share our story, less so with success, but more so with, here's what we did wrong. Here's where we failed. Here's what we didn't do right. And there are many organizations that can benefit from our learnings. And so we wanted to put that in a book counter to any other business book that is usually published, which is usually boastful of how successful they are or how successful leaders are. And in our case, we wanted to go in a vulnerable way and share the message with the world. You know how incredible that is for a business leader to have the humility, introspection, and willingness to change. And I want to get into the specifics about why in a moment, but I would love to hear because what you said is true. You know, people don't often associate love 
and business. It is very boastful. It is very greedy from what we see, right? How hard was it for people to buy into it? I mean, I know you said in your initial ring of influence, when people saw the results, they were willing to come into it. But I would imagine you hear stuff like Love as a Business Strategy podcast, like the alarm bells tend to start ringing if you're strictly in the old school business world. What are the hesitations and pushbacks people had for the word love when it came to business? I think we can start with our own organization. So maybe Jeff, you can share with the crew here how you reacted with the rest of our coworkers when I first introduced the concept of love in our workplace. We, the story goes back to 2015, obviously, and the journey was a very slow, progressive one through our organization. So the first misconception, I guess, that you'll learn even through reading the book, but in general is that it, this didn't happen overnight. And I think people know that, but playing it out in reality, it's even longer, slower, and more drawn out than people realize. Cause we'll often get the question like, you know, when did you know your culture turned around or what point did you realize? And it's like, no one can answer that question because Muhammad started by himself and Muhammad, he spent like maybe a year alone on this journey, like just literally alone because while a few people he would talk to about it, I was one of the few, few people he confided in earlier on but I wasn't joining him yet. I was just watching him saying, wondering when he would give up on this journey. And then it was a slow kind of trickle effect for other people to be inspired by the actual reality of like, you know, especially in business, when you see a leader suddenly change, you're usually kind of assuming it's a flavor of the month, something weird they're going through. Maybe it'll all come back to what you're used to. Like true human transformation is like a sight to behold and it's very rare. So we don't expect it. But when it comes to the word love, Muhammad started using it right away and it was very abrupt. And I remember throughout the organization, it was big eye rolls, like all around, right? We're like, okay, yeah, sure. Love. And we didn't really define it yet. We didn't really lay it all out. It was just a word, but I think it made a big difference because I look back and even though I can't pinpoint singular moments that actually changed, the word love has been around for so long. And it honestly, it's meant different things along the way, but it's still been there and it's been important. I think that word being uttered like in our hallways and now in our Zoom calls, you know, is a, such a critical part of like our culture now. And I think starting that early was a big deal. And I think, you know, the eye rolls and everything still exist. Like we started inside and it took that long for them to catch on. And so when we go out outside to other people and introduce it to other people, it's still the same kind of initial reaction. And we know it'll probably take just as long for other people to find their way through that word as well. But that's kind of the challenge we've taken on. That's kind of like the gauntlet we, we run because that's the only way where I think we're going to bring that message out is, and, and in a way it's provocative in the right way for some audiences where we intentionally want you to look at it and be like, how's, what, what is that? How can that even work? And maybe you'll open a book or listen to a podcast. You know, I appreciate that for a lot of reasons, but the two that really jump out to me is one sort of the, what you were talking about in terms of the intentionality and the length of time of that it takes to create like a, a transformation at this level. Cause I think we are in this society where everyone sort of explicts this like quick flip, right? We have one conversation and if things don't change, then we're, you know, we give up. And so I think that that intentionality and, you know, Muhammad to have a year in which you were working by yourself really. And then that growth after that as a company is I think really important. And it was great for me to hear that. And also Jeff, what you were saying about the word love and how words really matter, right. And the usage 
of words. And when you hear that word again and again, and even if it wasn't defined at the start, and then it started to become defined and like how that worked in the company. Mohammed, you remember um, early on in your journey, you'd call me up and you'd be super frustrated because you'd be like, I just did all these things for all these people and nobody even cares. Nobody even notices. Like you're really frustrated. And half of our pep talks during that time would just be like you going through those. And again, I'm the one you're venting to. This is literally the perspective I get to have that nobody else does. But I remember it always ends with, I'm so proud of you for this. You always would end with, but you know what? I'm not going to go out and brag and say, Hey, I just sold my car and put the money in the company. I'm not going to go do this or that. I'm just going to keep being consistent. And I think it's one thing to be visionary. It's one thing to be all these other things. But I think the only reason our story worked and, was, and got to where we are today, which we're still working forward today, we are not there, was because of Muhammad's consistency. And I think that's something that, that comes to mind when it comes to these long, drawn-out journeys. Because people don't know how to be consistent anymore, I think, in general, on these types of things. Yeah, I think that's probably true. And I think it's something we talk about in the anti-racism journey as well, that it's not a one-time conversation. It is a commitment to be sort of always reflexive and growing and learning and changing and caring about our fellow humans. And I think that was the question I did have for you. You said at the beginning, you didn't define love. How do you define it now? Because I've also been in situations where people are like, that can be a really triggering word for some people who've been abused or, you know, there's so much pushback around that. How do you define it within your organization and for those around you? So the way we define it today is love as a business strategy in particular is being able to put people at the center of every single decision that a business needs to take. So being inclusive of the people that work at your organization and representing them at those decisions and making your priority, not just profits, but your people. How does this impact your organization and the people that work there? How is this going to help them? How is this going to impact them? And everything, every decision from your food budget to your benefits, to which customers you take on, to what service lines you bring in. If you're going to bring, represent those that are not at the table with you, making those business strategic decisions, which are usually done with, you know, executives, right? At the C-suite level, how can we always put our organizational team members at the center of every single decision is what love is. Now, love is a business strategy. And there's a lot of other pillars of love that we define, which starts with inclusion. Second is empathy. Third is vulnerability, trust, empowerment, and most of all, forgiveness. When we bring these six pillars together, that's what really makes up our culture of love. So when we're able to bring that context to the workplace and talk about how inclusion works all the way down to forgiveness and how that can make a better work environment for each and every one, how we can build systems around it, how we can build processes around it and build technology around it. People start to see how a strategy layer can be constructed with the pillars of love. And so we try to bring all of those elements to our conversations, equation, and that's what we practice and strive for practicing inside of our own organization. I don't know if I answered your question or went totally in a different direction. No, that's great. I love the idea of the pillars of love. And, you know, you said a lot of these decisions are made at the the executive level, but you have a lot of people in your organization and people who are not at that table making those choices. How does that work in practicality for Softway for the C-suite to know what people in other levels need or want out of their priorities and their work capacity and that sort of thing? 
So I think it starts with those pillars, right? The pillars of culture of love. Number one, you need to be empathetic. You have to have empathy from everybody else's lens and you need to be able to bring that to the table when you're being, that's how you become inclusive. Like not everybody is able to come to that table. And if they're not, then being inclusive is, are you bringing their perspectives to the table in that conversation as you make these business strategic decisions? So that's how we would leverage that equation and making sure that we are being inclusive of others at the table while we decipher what systems we should put into place, what processes we should put into place, whether that's recruiting, whether that's performance reviews, whether that's promotional systems or career pathing. Are we really bringing everybody along as we think about those decisions and not just thinking about the business outcomes aspect? right? Like, oh, we need to be profitable. We need to increase profit by 20%. While those are all important, you want to start with the people. And then you will see that you will actually achieve better business outcomes when you center all of your strategy and your decisions around your people. Nobody's saying that by prioritizing your people, you're not going to make profits. We're here to actually challenge that narrative and say that they're not polar opposites but they are truly in tune with each other. You can take care of your people and make money and make sustainable business outcomes. And that's the whole premise of love as a business strategy. Yeah, I really like that because you often hear how busy people are. I just have to get this stuff done and I don't have time to have those conversations. But it sounds to me like you build this culture of abundance so that people have time to connect and have conversations and sit down and get to know the people on their team. I mean, is that structured as well? Or do you think that people who are in your organization now have absorbed that message? So it's not like you must take three hours a day to, or three hours a week to talk to your, you know, rank and file people. It's so funny. I find it almost as we've worked in this space for so long, it's almost funny how the word love does, how much it needs to be prescriptive for people. When like, if you just go home and say, I love my kids, I love my spouse, No one really needs to elaborate beyond that. And then we bring to the workplace and all of a sudden we have to put all these rules and boundaries around it. It's funny because on one hand, yes, if your organization doesn't have any of this stuff, even within the horizon of what they understand, you're going to have to use mechanisms to like insert it into that world. But when you look at the six pillars that we talk about, they all kind of gel and mesh together. They all overlap. You can't have one without all five other ones, like you talk about inclusion, it requires trust and vulnerability and empathy and forgiveness to all those things, right? And so they're so interconnected that when you try to put it, we talked about practical application. A good example I can give is if vulnerable type trust, in other words, relationship building is important to us. Is it more about setting aside three hour blocks on your calendar to just have, you know, chats Or is it actually how every meeting we have, even the really important, serious ones, we're a little bit off topic here or there. We don't, you know, necessarily stay on topic. We actually have to reel each other in sometimes. And some people see that meeting and they go, wow, that's a group of really unproductive people. But I would argue that, you know, we come to decisions faster. And even outside that meeting, I'm pushing harder to get those results for the people that I just spent time with more so than if we had been on topic, on the agenda, one after the other, everyone speaking up when it's their turn and then going back to our desks, right? Like those two types of things people think. So what you have is organizations with all those rigid kind of meetings and all these things. And they'll say, let's build love and trust. Fine. Everyone take another hour block on your calendar. 
override something else that's probably going to stress you out because now you can't do that. And everyone go have fun or let's have a party. You know, like that's great, but you know, you ha- and again, I don't have the silver bullet for everyone, but I'm showing the, the kind of dichotomy between kind of strategically, practically applying love and then just having love like built in to your, and so how do you bridge that is kind of our biggest challenge, right? Yeah. Well, as you're saying this, I'm thinking back to organizations that I've worked with and where we have done exactly that sort of like, uh oh, now we need to, you know, go back because we are trying to figure out how to insert this, but we haven't actually strategically figured that out. So we're going to, you know, schedule some time to like talk about it further. And then maybe we'll do like a trust fall along the way. And, you know, (laughs) that's actually literally happened. But, you know, I keep coming back to the practicality in your book. And Mohammed, I think you touched on this at the start, but the fact that you put so many real life examples in there, right. And really about failures though, and about times when it was hard, which to me, I love that from the very start of your book, because it really, it sets the tone so differently, right? And I think that comes with that vulnerability and the forgiveness and those pillars already baked in. So I would love to hear a little bit more about why you chose to lead with that. And from each of you, one example that really resonated that you want to share, because there's so many, I couldn't pick my favorites. So I'm going to let you pick yours. I think the key thing that I saw in our own organization was when I was able to show to the rest of the team that I don't know it all. I am not perfect. I am just like any other human in this room. I make mistakes. I screw up. I make bad decisions and I'm human like everyone else. I think it created an environment where everybody else had permission to be human. And so when I saw that in my own organization where like for 13 years of my career, I tried to lead the business like, you know, I'm a successful CEO. You must listen to me. I know what I'm doing and I can never be wrong to all of a sudden when I was able to, and you know, it didn't get me too far, right? Like the company was almost destroyed. And when I was able to just be myself and be human and face my fears of failure and where I'm not perfect. And when I was able to slowly, it took me a while to peel that layers off for me to be a demonstrating of that humility. I feel like when I started to do that, I connected a lot more with people. I was able to see people cared for me more and they showed genuine care and reciprocation to my care. And they saw me like themselves and not as this someone who's sitting on a pedestal, who's like this Mr. Know-it-all. And I think that allowed me to, number one, be psychologically safe as a leader, believe it or not. I started to become more psychologically safe around my team, uh, started to be more accepting of feedback, of input, of ideas, which I would generally not, you know, create an environment to even people give me ideas. They were scared to share ideas with me and all of the above. Like it just resulted in this true change inside of the organization where people felt more safe and confident to bring their full selves because of that. And so when I saw that transformation happen, and then I also saw that with our customers, when I was able to go up and share with a bunch of other executive leaders across fortune 50 companies, and share my story, the other leaders started to 
connect with me and from an empathic lens and they're like, you know what? That makes complete sense. I don't need to be perfect. I can be wrong. I can do wrong things or fail. And they started to connect with me and they would, you know, open up and have a moment of reflection and introspection and start having the realizations. When I saw that success through our program that we call Seneca Leaders, that's when we determined that the book has to carry that same tone. The book has to carry that same empathic learning approach where our readers can connect with us from an empathic lens, see themselves through our stories, go on their own journey of introspection. So every time they read a story of failure, they're thinking of, oh, I've done that too. I've been there as well. And I see, oh, it's okay. And giving them permission to be human and going through their introspective journey. So when we saw that empathic connection and being able to take them on their introspective journey through our stories, we decided that same flavor has to exist in the book. And that's why we took the decision of bringing that tone and voice and that format to the book. Yeah, we didn't go to school for this stuff. And so literally every lesson we have to share, if you take it as a lesson, if you have to, like, we don't come in saying, this is how things should be done, or this is the pathway to success. We say this was our pathway to success and we're still on it. And this is our lived experience. So we always come in, first thing we enter a space, we always say we are not academics. Everyone just put me very clear. We are not academics, we are practitioners. All we've done is tried a lot of crazy things and failed a lot. And we believe though, that there's a whole lot of value in that, that failures carry with it so much more learning than successes. And if we've had so many of them, you can hear you are, here it is, enjoy, you know, free for you to consume and learn from. And, and like Muhammad said, if people can connect and find themselves in it, you'll learn and kind of be motivated. Like we live in a weird space. We're not here just to give you education. Like we're not here to say step one, step two, step three. We're actually here more for you to sit you know, close the book or, you know, stop listening and just kind of have that moment of like, huh, I've done that. Or that reminds me of so-and-so or absolutely. Like that's literally all we want. If you get there, it's so powerful. And I think that's what most authors want from what they do. But I think a lot of times, you know, people need to be reached in different ways. And so our chosen, you know, mechanism or vehicle is, you know, we're just like you and we just want to share a story. And writing this book was Kind of funny because it got the word business in it. It's categorized as business. But Muhammad, while we were writing it, it was basically just like a diary journal dump of like, it was fun to write. It was honestly very fun to write. It was just, just remember this story. I'll remember that and connecting the dots. So that's what it is. That's why we get a lot of feedback on the book that it's just, it doesn't read like a business book. And that was pretty intentional. I love that because I definitely, as I was reading it, I've seen those stories or I've seen, you know, that transpire, whether it was me or whether it's a situation that I've been in. And it did make me reflect in different ways, right? Because when you're, you're reading it as, you know, a third party reader, you have this perspective or you gain this perspective in some ways. And, you know, when I was reading the book too, and, and thinking about this focus on bringing humanity into the workplace, right? I know how I feel about my work and how I feel about how I am valued at work, you know, translates into how I interact with others outside of work. It's, it's sort of impossible to separate those two. So I'm curious to hear from both of you, how did, you know, really focusing on bringing humanity into the workplace translate into how you interacted 
with others outside of work as well. And did you see that also on a larger level for the company? Oh man. I mean, I've said this many, many times before, if it weren't for Softway and our journey and our work that we do in this direction, I would be nowhere near the husband, the father, and the friend that I am in my personal life, hands down easily. If you took our book and just stripped out, you know, the, your company and, you know, it just replaced it with, you know, your circle of influence, your friends and your family, the lessons absolutely apply, you know, culture of love as the name implies, is just a culture that can exist, not just in a workplace. We tailor it specifically to workplace necessities and needs in the way that it uniquely impacts our environment, especially as it contrasts to the, I hate to say it negatively, but like, you know, corporate, like normal corporate norms nowadays is important to highlight. But man, the focus of what we all talk about is introspection, self-awareness, bringing, asking yourself the tough questions. And I mean, just practicing this along the way, not because of the book, but leading into the book, all this journey has, at least for me personally, opened up so many doors of realization of how I am, how I treat X, Y, or Z, the biases that I inherently have, the relationships that I have, you know, unintentionally, you know, hurt or destroyed along the way, all that has come up. And so I think it's just for me, very powerful. And I've heard stories of others who've crossed paths with us and also had similar experiences where talking about work, but like you said, and we believe this, this is in our mission statement. We say, bring humanity back to the workplace. It's not the emphasis on workplaces on the word humanity, because we spend so much time at work. If you're having a bad day at work, you have a tough boss, you come home, you are not nice to your kids. You are not in a good mood. You are stressed, you have, you know, health conditions, everything like a toxic work environment can lead to toxic, you know, just a bad life environment. And so we're very passionate about those things. And it's, and it's played true for me, at least. Sorry, I hogged all that. Mohammed, how has it affected oh, you? I mean, same, just like you, I think it's a big part of what even got me to consider this aspect of culture of love in the workplace is because of examples outside of work, right? Like there are a lot of nonprofits that focus on the well-being of people, humanity, you know, in third world countries or in our society and so forth. But one of the things that I think matters most is that, you know, everybody has to work, almost everyone, and we spend more hours at a workplace. And why not start there? Why not bring a revolution at a workplace so that it influences beyond the workplace? And it does, because when you're helping change behaviors and mindsets of people at a workplace, they're going to carry that beyond the workplace. They're going to take it home with them. They're going to take it to their neighbors. They're going to take it to the stores they walk into, like how they behave, how they treat each other, how they see other humans is going to change. And if we can institute that change and start a movement in the corporate workplace of bringing back humanity to the workplace, that might be a solution to make an impact on the overarching society and the world eventually. So while our mission and vision is to focus on the workplace, we think it can have an outsized influence beyond the workplace and society at large. So I do think it impacts people personally, and that's the way we make a difference to the rest of society and the globe. I want to add one more thing, actually. It's also because as you know, events over the last year have arisen and more awareness has come around inclusion and diversity and just, you know, hate floating around as well. You know, it's really the work in this space has really helped me personally and others, I guess, understand and tackle those things 
better as well in their own journeys. The example I can give essentially is, and again, we don't claim to have figured it all out for sure, but when it came to diversity and inclusion in our organization, kind of a little you know, shameful secret is that we didn't really address those things early on. Like in our journey, we didn't have a DNI council or any like concerted efforts towards diversity causes. And when we came to really trying to address like what we want to do about these issues and how we want to tackle that these situations, we look back and we had our own little self-awareness conversation where we're like, what do we like? How are we being inclusive? How are we achieving, you know, these goals that we should be striving for. And it did two things. One, we're in a very emotionally mature state to like take those on well, but we also had a great realization in that inclusion doesn't need to be tackled head on. We had a lot of wins in our organization from an inclusion perspective that were there, if you want to say accidentally. So like, for instance, in my, uh, the group that I was running for a while, the project management group for a long time, we would look for one type of resume and we would hire one type of person, project management experience, et cetera, you know, you know, scrum masters and things like that. And you get a lot of essentially white males and other things that show up as very specific type of person who, and we'd go through and we'd hire some, you know, very typical. You don't think twice about those things. By the time we got to this point, and this is without thinking about the word inclusion at all or diversity, you look at our project management group and it's, you know, actually dominant female you know, different backgrounds, all sorts of, and not just cultural backgrounds, but like their work experience background. We have event planners, we had like restaurant managers, like all these different types of people filling this project manager role. And we go, well, that's diversity right there. How did we get that? And we looked back and it was literally because of our mindsets around, you know, the culture where we said, Hey, you know what? At no point were we saying we need to tackle a diversity problem. We were just saying, you know what, maybe in order to make sure we have the right culture, we need to be looking at different backgrounds. Like just because we want project managers doesn't mean we have to look at people who've only done project management. You can gain this experience through other things. So we started broadening our search, looking for different types of people with lived experiences, trying to find people who could bring the right you know, X factor in. And that to us like was a small but tangible win in that vein. And it's so important because- in my opinion, you can achieve, it's such an important lesson for us of how to achieve inclusion through, I mean, I'm biased, but the five other pillars that we have, instead of tackling directly, like we need to fix inclusion, which I think a lot of organizations get wrong. I mean, I think what you're saying is it takes it from a performative action, something that you have to check the box for into something that's deep seated in the way that you see the world. And I think that's the kind of longstanding transformation that will last. And so I appreciate that you shared that. That's a really, really cool byproduct of this work. Our organization still has ways to go with diversity and inclusion, but I think how our journey started wasn't through the, you know, oh, let's just start hiring, you know, X, Y, Z type diversity elements, you know, people from these backgrounds and things like that. It wasn't like that or it was more about how do we look at people as people, as humans, and start finding the commonalities and start bringing in people to the organization and looking at them from a commonality perspective before we started to look at them from their diversity element. And I think in today's society, we are extremely polarized with the us versus them, you know, for various reasons. And when you think about the word love, it's the word that resonates with all sides, 
whether you're on the left, whether you're on the right, whether you are highly conservative, love is appealing, whether you're highly liberal, love is appealing, and love is what really unifies everyone. And while I don't want to minimize the differences that everyone brings to the table, the reality is we got to get everyone to the table to even start conversing. And if we start from a place of us versus them, then you're not even going to have those dialogues. You're not even going to have those conversations. And so if you think about DNI initiatives at various corporations today, they're focused on hiring, which is good, which is where we need systems. We need elements like that to recruit people. But what happens once they're recruited? What are we doing to make sure we're truly being inclusive? Right. And there's only so much checking the box and looking at the numbers is truly going to help solve the problems of true inclusion. And so when you think about love as a business strategy from a DNI perspective, we believe that it's the one unifying factor that brings everyone to the table, appreciate each other as humans, respect each other as humans, and change our behaviors towards each other, no matter which background they're from. And we don't try to magnify how you treat, you know, a person from a certain demographic versus we just talk about, let's just learn to treat people as people, as humans, as humans. And then we, once we have them at the table and unified from a place of love, now it becomes a lot easier to talk about our differences. When you love one another and have a culture of love, we can have those hard conversations. We can have those discomfort type situation and still walk away knowing that we're in this together. We're here for each other. And we're coming from a place of love when we discuss this, when someone's curious, when someone gives feedback about somebody, how they treated a woman in that meeting. It comes from a place of love. For me, for example, I've had situations where I have interrupted a woman knowingly or unknowingly through my subconscious or my unconscious bias. And if it wasn't for the culture of love, I wouldn't have had the gift of feedback where I was told, Muhammad, you know how you behaved in that meeting? You know what you did? This is what you did. And that was not acceptable. Had it not been for the culture of love where I know that the person's coming from a place of love, I wouldn't be able to even accept that feedback. I would go into a us versus them mindset. And because of this culture of love, we're able to have these conversations around diversity and behaviors and how we treat each other just because of those differences a lot more easily. So maybe what I'm trying to get at is I think the first step to really start having real conversations is let's bring everyone together on the common platform and then begin to talk about our differences rather than jumping and speaking about differences at once. So that's kind of where my head is from that regard. I really appreciate that because I think it goes back to the intentionality, right? And how I think we've seen a lot in this past year of companies kind of jumping in and looking for this measurable output of how they've been able to move this needle in DEI work. And I think a lot of them made a lot of statements that now people are calling them on. And the difference is when you have a culture that you have really built around humanity and seeing people as humans and making that such an organic part 
of how you look at all of these processes, right? That are part of DEI work when you think about companies, how much more sustainable that is, even if you're as every company is right on this journey somewhere, the way that you do it and the thought that goes into it is creating sort of a longer term measure. That's not just focused on this immediate, you know, one year output, where are we? as a lot of companies are having to walk back what they said a year prior. In hearing both of you talk about diversity and inclusion as being one of these great, you know, positive net and benefit from love as a business strategy and the pillars that you've built. I'm curious to hear what other benefits besides, and also, you know, the obviously productivity clients, you know, what we've talked about on the business side, but what other benefits can you see that you didn't expect? I'll start with one. It's an overused word nowadays, but it's resilience. I think it's become super cliche since the pandemic and things like that, because everybody wants this, I guess, built in. But before we knew the word, I feel like we were resilient because of what we had built. And again, not perfect. And we have a long ways to go. We can be better. But when the pandemic hit, I felt like our relationships, the trust that we had built in the places that we had within the organization was a huge, huge advantage in order to be able to not only you know survive going through the initial parts, but also moved us forward faster as we had to change and adapt. So it was a mindset thing in each person, but as an organization, I felt like the culture of love that we had still been already working on helped really be a, a, just an accelerator in our ability to be resilient especially in that context of the pandemic. We didn't expect that. That's something we just kind of went, oh, well, we're going to keep going then, right? Yeah, we're good. Like the no questions asked, like everybody's on board because it was understood. I'd say in addition to that was innovation. We were getting far more people bringing ideas to the table. We were able to become more innovative, develop better technology solutions for our customers. But also from a process perspective, we looked at our processes differently because of the change in mindsets and our attitudes, we started to reevaluate our recruiting process, our project management processes, our promote, you know, career pathing. All of it came from a lens of how do we make it more humanistic? So we saw better outcomes there, which led to you know, career velocity improving for our talent. We saw attrition drop from 30% to 13%. Our revenues went up by 280% in less than three years. Our uh, six-figure accounts all of a sudden became seven-figure accounts. So our accounts with our clients grew We saw like our EBITDA improve with a differential of 44%, which is huge. So we saw a lot of business outcomes that were achieved as a result of embracing love as a business strategy in our business that quite honestly, we have to attribute entirely to the culture. So those are some other examples that I could share with you. I'm here for all of that. So I want to ask you both, where do you go from here? What's next for Softwave, for the book? For you both? Sure. So for Softway, since we've found our new calling, which is to bring back humanity to the workplace, we've leveraged our DNA as a technology company to be able to build culture as a service available for different corporations around the globe that could leverage our organization with products, experiences, and solutions to help transform their cultures and make culture as a competitive advantage for them. And, you know, we're hoping to continue to spread awareness around love as a business strategy and helping 
the rest of the globe become aware that there is an alternate reality to work as we see today. There is a better way to have a work environment where employees can be themselves, bring their full selves and still you know, have a business in place that's about making money and for profit. And we want to challenge that narrative and help continue to propagate this message. That's what I believe our goal is. And for me personally, you know, this is finally a newfound purpose for me. You know, when I started the business, my initial goal was, oh, I want to grow up to, you know, being a multi-billion dollar company. I want to have thousands of employees. Now my purpose is clearly let's help bring back humanity to the workplace. So anything and everything that can help me pursue that purpose, that's what I will do and continue to do. I don't know how to follow that one, but, you know, ditto, but also, you know, from the book perspective specifically, we had an amazing journey getting it out there. We've had the fortune of being an Amazon bestseller, Wall Street Journal bestseller. A lot of me is like, oh, great, celebrate. But like Muhammad said, it's kind of the beginning. There's a lot to do to get the word out and make believers out of people because we really do believe that, you know, there's lives to be impacted by this message. It's not, you know, we come from the angle of a business book because, you know, quite honestly, business leaders hold a lot of people's lives in their hands. I mean, a single transformed heart of a CEO out there can mean, you know, families, you know, coming together, um, fixing relationships can mean people getting their health back can mean lives forever transformed. And that's a big deal. And so, you know, any opportunity we have to talk about this, any opportunity we have to get the message out, not to sell books, but to get the message out and actually get people to believe that, you know, there's a different way to do business. We're going to take it. And so we got a long road ahead of us, I think, in order to keep pushing that message out there. And yeah, really appreciate you also giving us a platform here to share as well. Totally. It's so related though. So if people listening are influential in their business platforms, like what can you offer them aside from read the book? What are these things that you have in mind to help them transform? Are they, is it consultant work? Like tell me a little bit more specifically what they can do differently now to reach out to you. Sure. So f- first of all, we have a you know suite of solutions. Number one being transformative experiences for leaders, which we call the product Seneca Leaders. We take leaders through a two-day experience where we help them find their introspective journey through our stories and help them have a realization of how they can have an influence on changing the culture of their organization. So that's an example. We also have a DNI a social awareness self-paced experience platform where people can log on and learn about different elements of diversity through lived experiences, not just, you know, here's what it means to be Indian or Asian, but really sharing real lived experiences of people, you know, from different elements of diversity and hopefully build an empathic connection and build social awareness. So we have products like that. And we also have a product where we have a executive coach in your pocket. So we have a mobile application that is in the works that we have a MVP for today. But the idea is to help leaders and employees change their behaviors through this application, just like how you might have a fitness app, but an app to help leaders change their behaviors and how they can be more caring, compassionate, and loving of their employees through this application, reminding them to do things and giving them constant learning reminders of how to be a better leader. So ideas like that, products like that. 
I love it. And it, so for people who want to buy the book and put it on their LinkedIn feed so I can see it on mine or want more information about Softway, where can they find you and the book and all the things? Loveisabusinessstrategy.com is the most straightforward way. You can get links to everything um, related to the book. Book's also available at retailers, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, et cetera. But yeah, we'd love to hear from you. So it's weird. We have software and we have Love as a Business Strategy. You can come to any of them and find all this stuff. But if you're interested in what we've been talking about, loveisabusinessstrategy.com is a great place to start. And if you'd like to know more about software and our services, software.com obviously is a great place to start as if you're looking for that kind of help as well. And we appreciate you allowing us to share our story and spreading the awareness. Thank you so much. Yeah. This was selfish for me. I had a really good time our last conversation. So I was looking for any excuse to come back and chat. So I got what I wanted out of this. So. You're still here learning how to uproot systemic racism one conversation at a time. Our fresh news. We have a brand new book that's available for pre-order. So find us on bookshop.org at Dear White Women and order. And then make sure you follow the Dear White Women podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts so you can keep getting the newest episodes each Wednesday. And don't forget to rate and review us as you share our show with your friends. Follow us on Instagram at Dear White Women Podcast and Twitter at DWW Podcast. And if you love us, support our Patreon or look for ways you can bring us into your place of employment or circle of influence for a talk or ask us about our webinars and consulting work. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being here.